Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Brooklyn in New York. We haven't done a show in Brooklyn in so many years. In fact, we're coming to you from an amazing new hotel called the William Vale. Uh, I mean, talk about a, a renaissance in Brooklyn. This hotel certainly represents that. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, the official historian of the borough of Brooklyn, uh, Ron Schweiger. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thanks, Peter. Now, in my introduction, I, I, I mentioned, not to you, but to the show, I'm a Manhattanite, so please forgive me. Born and you're, raised. You're forgiven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, born and raised. And when I was growing up, uh, I went to elementary and junior high school in Manhattan. I went to high school in the Bronx. Even going to the Bronx was a brave new world for me. I mean, it was like, where is that? You know, it, well, it was how many subway stops, Right. And, you know, you would change trains at 125th Street, then you change trains at 149th Street, and you get up all the way up to the Yankee Stadium and beyond. But when it came to Brooklyn, I was clueless. That was, I thought it was, I needed a visa or a passport. I feel uh, the same way about the Bronx. <laughs> but you know where I'm going. It's, it's one of those things where I didn't really know it. I knew what was there. Um, I would watch the news with Gabe Pressman, and and that's for the New Yorkers listening to me. You know exactly who I'm talking about. He's still around. He's still. How old is he now? In his nineties. In his nineties, mm-hmm. uh, on NBC. That's right. And uh, but every time I got to Brooklyn, I got lost. And then in the meantime, guess what happened? Brooklyn got found, and all of that history is now back. 
all of it's being preserved. And that's really what you talk about. That's true. Um, I've been the historian since 2002. It's not unique, by the way, to Brooklyn. By law, each of the five boroughs of New York City must appoint a borough historian by the borough president. So you're here under legal terms. Correct. And, uh, in fact, every county in the state of New York appoints a county historian. That's written in in the constitutions of each of the counties. Now, were you born in Brooklyn? My entire life, yes. So so you know your way around. I should by now, yes. (laughs) But what people don't realize are all the neighborhoods in the borough. I mean, and, and everybody here, you know, everybody knows that the hot boroughs and the hot neighborhoods like Williamsburg and what, Cobble? Uh, Cobble Hill. Cobble Hill. Clinton Hill. Yeah. Um, and Victorian Flatbush, Dittmas Park, the Dittmas Park area, um, even Brighton Beach. In Brooklyn, you can go to Russia without a passport. You just go to Brighton Beach. And exactly. you've got restaurants, nightclubs, uh, appetizing stores where you can get items that you probably can't find anywhere else in the city. Well, the best borscht in New York, probably. Probably, yes. Yeah. But here's the thing. When I was growing up, you weren't you didn't go to Brooklyn because the only place you heard about was Bedsty, and you know that was like the, the the capital of what we perceived to be the you know the drive-by shooting capital. Guess what? It's 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 booming now. Brooklyn is the hottest thing going right now. And you say when growing up, I don't know how old you are, but do you remember the Brooklyn Dodgers? You know what? I do, and I've never forgiven Brooklyn for losing them. Uh, they, my, nev- they never moved. They're on an extended road trip. A, a very extended road trip. Yes. For those of you who, who really want to hear or watch some history, there was a wonderful HBO documentary. You were in it. Yeah, I was in it, Oh, yes. my God. Larry King was in it, but, I mean, it, but it was when the Dodgers left Brooklyn. Right. Unbelievable. And, and, uh, and, and while they wanted to move the stadium to where now City Field really is, um, oh, you know what? You're right. That we were th- you know who we were thinking about? Robert... Uh, Robert Moses. Robert Moses. But the, they were playing at Ebbets. He was the wrong Moses. I know, the very yeah. wrong Moses. Yes. But they were playing at Ebbets Field. The Dodgers were at Ebbets Field. And I'll give you an idea of how old I am. I remember when we got a TV set. And, of course, it was black and white. And I got to watch a Dodger game from Ebbets Field on that set. And I'll never forget, I watched Junior Gilliam steal second base. Okay. I'll never forget that. And then they left. They left. Well, then you must be younger than me. Because um, when I went to Ebbets Field yeah. um, in, the, in, the 19, in the mid-50s, yeah. I was 10, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. The Dodgers left when I was 12 yeah. after the 1957 season. Right. And the first game I attended there with my father in 1952 when I was 7. And I'm holding his hand. We had box seats behind home plate. And I'm holding his hand. And when we walked up the ramp to the field-level seats, the first level... And I caught my first glimpse of the field. I stopped short. My father goes, what's the matter? I pointed to the field. I said, the grass is green. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, on television, it's black and white. <laughs> and many people have had that same experience. Oh, yeah. When you see it, yeah. well, when you grew up in that era, that's, that's, that's right. that was the difference. But you do have a team now. There's a, there's a, there's a baseball team in Brooklyn. M- my wife and I have season tickets for the Brooklyn Cyclones. And they play on a on a very historic site, the site of the old Steeplechase Amusement Park in Coney Island, where the parachute jump stands. Yeah, I remember. And uh, so we have season tickets, and it's a short season. The season starts uh, June 20th, and it ends the first week of September. And uh, many players, it's by the way, it's a New York Mets farm team, and several players. Triple A, right? No, no, it's, it's short season single A. Oh, my goodness. So these are young kids. And several of them are on the Mets right now that started with the Brooklyn Cyclones. That's the way to do it. That's right. 
Now, where we are right now, the William Vale, right? Where, what, what was this neighborhood before? Well, my father lived here in the, uh, probably in the 19-teens. He came here in 1917, so in the 1920s, my father was living, I think, on North, North 5th Street or South, I know it was a five in it, so it's either North 5th or South 5th Street, and then the family moved to other locations. And um, it was, um, at that time, um, um, a growing community. It was an industrial community. You had, first of all, at the turn of the century, not this century, but I'm talking about 1900, um, Brooklyn was the beer capital of the United States. Brooklyn had 45 beer breweries. Now, you see, as a Manhattan guy, I remember Knickerbocker and Rheingold. Well, Rheingold was here in Brooklyn. Peels. I can, I can still sing the song. Okay. My beer is Rheingold, the dry beer. Won't you try it whenever you buy beer? It's not bitter, not sweet. It's a great extra treat. Won't you try it? It's a dry Rheingold beer. Okay, thank What do I get? Nothing. Okay. You can get a beer for that one. But not <laughs> Rheingold. But not, <laughs> not Rheingold, Rheingold. And not Knickerbocker. But most of these breweries were right along the East River in Greenpoint, Bushwick, and Williamsburg because they would ship a lot of their product not only throughout New York City, but up the East River, up the Hudson River, the Erie Canal, which is connected to the Great Lakes, and then the Great Lakes are connected to the Midwest. Now, isn't it ironic that we've come full circle now, because how many craft breweries do you now have in Brooklyn? Now they're growing. Yeah. Now they're growing. Uh, it started with the Brooklyn Brewery, yeah. and now you have several breweries. There's one, there's one company that's actually distilling whiskey. So uh, you, it, it's growing. Listen, they're, they're making chocolate in, in Brooklyn now. They're doing all sorts of stuff. Yes, Jacques Torre's chocolates. I know it. Delicious. I know it. That's in the, uh, in the Dumbo area. For those of you who are listening, that's not a derogatory name. What is it? Explain. Dumbo is down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. So <laughs> if you're talking to someone and you ask them where they live, and, and, and if they say, I live in Dumbo, don't say to them, oh, gee, I'm sorry to hear that. It's a... It's an, it used to be an industrial area with warehouses, Civil War-era warehouses, that are now co-ops and condos, and overlooking the East River, overlooking the skyline of Manhattan, right by the Brooklyn and Manhattan bridges. Now, this is a hotel that is a new build. I mean, I mean it's you know, really built from scratch. I mean, it's brand new. It's brand new. It's only been open about 10 months. Yes. But so much of Brooklyn, they are really working hard to preserve the architecture. That's true. Well, the New York City Landmarks Commission was established in 1965, and the very first landmark designated in New York City was in Brooklyn, and it was a Dutch farmhouse that was built in 1652. It's open to the public. It is a museum. It's right on the, the Canarsie-East Flappish border at 5816 Clarendon Road. And by the way, for people who want to know what, what was a Dutch farmhouse doing here, let's not forget New Amsterdam. That's right. Of That's course. Of course. And, right. um, and the Dutch settled here and established five Dutch towns or villages and one English town. And, uh, and it grew. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. doing a show in Brooklyn because, as I said to our last guest, there, Ron Schweiger, you know, I grew up in Manhattan. I'm one of those Manhattan elites who, who never knew 
sort of where Brooklyn was. We never went to Brooklyn. We thought we needed, you know, a special passport to get here. I always got lost when I did come to Brooklyn. Uh, boy, Brooklyn has changed radically. It is probably the hottest borough in the city. No, not possibly. It is the hottest borough in the city. And uh, joining me now, the senior editor for New York Magazine, Carolyn Murnick, who also lives in Brooklyn. I do. But you've been writing for the magazine for 10 years. When did you move to Brooklyn? Um, well, this this summer is my 20th year in New York, amazingly. And so I spent eight of those in Manhattan, and then I've been in Brooklyn for 12. And you moved because? Um, you wanted to be hipper? Yeah, actually, well, my <laughs> dream was to always have one of those classic New York lofts with, you know, high ceilings and a beautiful view of of the skyline and sort of in Williamsburg was was the place to go to to get one of those sort of artist lofts and so that that's what brought me here. Right. And Williamsburg is 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 like almost priced out now. Yeah. So that's actually that's why I moved yeah. 4 years ago. Before it got too crazy. Mhm. <laughs> yeah, when yeah. I when I lived here, I think it was 2004 2005 is when there was this sort of landmark rezoning of this area which is when they started construction on all these big high rises that you see on the waterfront now. And so that, that's really fundamentally changed the character of this neighborhood and kind of brought so many more people in. Now, you went to school in New York, mm -hmm. right? I went to Columbia. Right. So did my dad, so did my sister, by the mm -hmm. way. So that's cool. Up on 100 and, what is it, 16th and, and Morningside. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But what about Brooklyn keeps you here? Um, it's a great question. I mean, after uh, after so many years commuting into Manhattan for my job, I've, I've just learned to think about going, leaving work and getting to be in a sort of leafier, tree-lined, slightly quieter paced neighborhood, kind of what feels right for me. And you can ride your bike around a little bit more easily and farmer's markets. And I feel like Brooklyn is just a, a slightly quieter pace. And it feels like Manhattan I associate with culture and also work and everything's and happening higher energy. there. And yeah, higher energy. higher energy. In Brooklyn, you get to go across the river and be a little bit quieter. Now, you mentioned farmer's markets. The food scene in Brooklyn now is out of control. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly out of control. Absolutely. You actually had a festival just for bacon in Brooklyn. I mean, yeah, we have a, a whole store of mayonnaise and uh, really everything. Wait, stop. Wait, wait, stop. A what? There's, there's a mayonnaise emporium in, in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, you can find uh, every, every sort of single item food fetish like uh, poke bowls or, you know, the ramen burger. It all, it all started here. Brooklyn's been having a culinary moment really for the past decade and it keeps getting bigger. But the food trucks didn't start here, did they? Well, uh, the Smorgasburg Festival, which is now kind of grown into satellite locations in Manhattan, that did start right in Williamsburg. And that's sort of the uh, original kind of festival of street food where people line up at carts to taste everything from you know, empanadas to Thai ice cream to um, special drinking vinegars, and, and that, that definitely all started here. All right, but let's talk Williamsburg because that's where mm -hmm. you live. What's the cool spots to eat in Williamsburg that may not be in the brochures, may not be in the guidebooks that you hang out at? Hmm. Um, it's a great question. It, it changes so fast. There's something opening every day. I, you know, speaking of poke, I recently went to a new poke now, spot. On now, for people who don't know what poke is, mm -hmm. actually, I grew up with poke in Hawaii because mm. that's where they really started, yeah. the Asian cuisine uh, or Pacific Asian cuisine. It's tuna. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's marinated. And it's phenomenal with the sesame and all the other stuff they throw in there. Yeah, they're doing, you know, other kinds of fish. I think they have salmon here, too. So it's yeah. basically just basic but fish. But the original poke was too. Hawaiian, yeah. yeah it's yeah. basically a basic fish and sauce over rice or seaweed salad. And it's sort of a very healthy, protein-packed, flavorful kind of 
grab-and-go sort of meal now, and, and there's a bunch of spots opening up across the city that specialize in only poke. And if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest is the author, well, first of all, he's the founder of, of a series of books called Off Track Planet, but what I really love about it is not the title of the book itself, because it's titled based on a destination, like, you know, America, Brooklyn, whatever. It's called For the Young, Sexy, and Broke. Well, I can't speak to the second one. Actually, I can't even speak to the first one. Maybe I'll just be broke. But, but the thing that really got me was on the title, of, uh, on the title cover page of your America book, you have the actual car I used to drive. Oh, cool. 71 VW bus. Nice. Mine was called Sierra Yellow. It was actually orange. You couldn't miss this bus forever. And it's the only car I ever bought that when I sold it, I got more money for it because you couldn't find the buses anymore. Yeah. I know. But now you did one on Brooklyn, which is so totally cool. Thank you. And, and the point is, it's got to be an, any, any guidebook has to be accessible, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about young, sexy, and broke, I mean, that's that's who used to move to Brooklyn. Right. Right? Yep. Now they're wealthy. Well, they pretend to be broke. They're wealthy, sexy, and spending money. Right. Right? Yeah. So what's changed? Uh, it's, you know, I, you know, I think Williamsburg is a, is a great example, right? It, it was a place uh, historically um, that wasn't really a, a, an appealing tourist attraction by any means. <clears throat> it was a place where a lot of blue-collar workers lived and a lot of industry was here. And um, at some point, you, you know, industries moved out and you had artists come in. And artists created space that uh, created a lot of artistic excitement. A lot of people wanted to uh, come and move into these warehouses that were suddenly available. And uh, it created, you know, part of the culture of, of, you know, this whole hipster sort of thing now where people came to see all these artists and, and bohemians living. And, and, it, and, you know, they created cool stores and places and, and bars and restaurants that people would want to go to and, and see and just kept going, going, going until, you know, developers moved in and built places people wanted to live in. And now we're talking to Freddie Pekowski who started this all, but you started this, what, out of, out of a hostel? Yes. So. <laughs> in Brooklyn? Yes. In a, in a neighborhood called Bedsty, which at the time was a oh, place. Wait, hold it, stop right there. A hostel in Bedsty yeah. in two thousand one, two thousand eight. Okay, so it was just starting to turn. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I just come back from a backpacking trip around the world. Of course you did. Um, I had so I was originally born in Brooklyn and then moved back to Los Angeles when I was a kid. My family sort of took me away from it, and it was my first time back in twenty years. Um, and I fell in love with it and thought, you know, this is the place that I was meant to really grow up and be. And, uh, after my backpacking trip, I, it gave me the courage to, to move here. And, uh, you know, Bed-Stuy was just sort of an affordable place for a young broke kid to, to stay. And it was luckily, you know, a rent-free situation living there. Um, and I was surrounded by, you know, travelers every day and it influenced me to, inspired me to, to start working on something like this. Well, the book that you did was really your rediscovery of where you grew up. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so what did you rediscover that you were not prepared for? Ooh, that's interesting. You know, the, there's a lot of controversy around, you know, gentrification. You know, there's a, there's a lot of... Um, well, it's a slippery slope. Yes, slippery slope. You know, there's a lot of great things that it brings and then there's the, the other side of it that, you know, it, it sort of kicks people out but you know th there is a rediscovery of so there was that sort of uh friction and, and, and tough thing to sort of deal with but there's so much excitement around you know the type of people that were coming in and opening new businesses and all the new you know attractions that and and, and just 
re um, you had neighborhoods that people weren't going to that all of a sudden people were going to and bringing commerce to and, and had something new and exciting to 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 see to, to you know all these new attractions so um you know it, it along with it came also the, the the fact that you know affordable neighborhoods were no longer affordable you know that was that was part of the deal well where are you living now um, right now, I'm in an interesting uh, part of Brooklyn called Bushwick, which is a very creative, quirky place. Um, it's probably, to be honest, one of the ugliest neighborhoods, I would have to admit, in Brooklyn. So you're waiting for it to turn? I, it's, it's, it's already making that turn. I don't think it'll ever be Williamsburg because, um, you know, Williamsburg, you have the benefit of being much closer to, uh, to Manhattan and, and having the, water, the, the uh, river right there. So Bushwick is a little bit less accessible and it's a little further out. And I think that will help retain its artistic bohemian lifestyle for a while longer. So basically, if a place looks like a dump, you call it artistic. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I just want to make sure we're clear about sure, this. Sure, sure. But the, the, the thing that I love about Bushwick, and it's not a neighborhood I thought I would enjoy. It just kind of worked out that way. It's the type of place. It's a, there's just hidden gems everywhere. You walk around, and you, you peek into some building, and you realize that there's some some amazing you know workshop going on or there's some amazing they somehow created this really cool retro bar fit into some old warehouse and so there's a lot of interesting just gems there should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge and to start the flow of oxygen pay your flight attendant $75.63 my mother got rest I grew up in New York, in Manhattan, so we didn't talk to people in Brooklyn. We didn't even recognize their existence. We thought we needed a visa to go, uh, and every time I did go, uh, I went with other people because I would get lost. Uh, even out to Coney Island, I would get lost. Although it was, if you rode the trains, you couldn't get lost because the train only went as far as Coney Island, and then you can come back. I mean, it was okay. But now you're a fool if you don't go to Brooklyn. Uh, it's exploding, and hotels like this are a good example of how Brooklyn has, has not just grown up, it's, it's, it's uh, grown smart. And uh, so many different things to do, so many places to go. And, and my guest is somebody who knows a little bit about that. She's the food editor at Brooklyn Magazine and also the author of the Brooklyn Chef's Table. So I mean, we're talking about a food scene that is not just growing, it's, it's exploding. And her name is Sarah Zorn. Hey, Sarah. Hey. And, well, you're, and you're a Brooklynite. Yes, I, you have established my Brooklyn credentials. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very used to hearing that from, from a Manhattan native. It is, it's still harder to convince somebody from Manhattan that Brooklyn has it going on. Easier to get somebody from Germany to come and visit us than somebody from the Upper East Side. Well, don't, come on, I'm here. <laughs> you are here. I'm here. And, and then jet-setting to the next place, but I hope we convince you to come back Absolutely. and stick around. But you know, when I was growing up, and you may notice I don't really have a New York accent. No, and I don't either. I know, and yet everybody knew a New York accent meant you came from Brooklyn in those days. Or it? Queens. Yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> so it was like, a, how you doing, how you doing, how you doing, how yeah. you doing? And, you know, the original forget about it and all that stuff, right? But the only time I went to Brooklyn when I was a kid, I always remember this, that's the only time anybody ever called me Pete. Oh, yes. <laughs> in Manhattan, I'm Peter. Right. In Brooklyn, hey, Pete. Right? What, do you enjoy being called Pete? I'm, not, I'm still not used to that. No. You don't seem like a Pete to me. You do seem like a Peter. Okay, it's good. Not a, then you can stay. Uh, you, okay. You, okay. Oh, good. Okay, okay. okay. we're good. We're okay. good. We're good. I said the right thing. You did. <laughs> but being the Brooklynite that you are, you grew up where? 
I grew up in Park Slope, which has its a certain sort of connotation today, but when I grew up, it was the, I'll say it, I'll admit it was the 80s and actually a very different neighborhood back then. It's very um, yuppie today, very well-to-do, and back... Would the word gentrified be? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it certainly, it was one of the first major hubs of, of gentrification. Um, I remember the days when you really didn't venture beyond 7th Avenue. 6 was getting a little dicey. 5 was not to be considered. 4th, you know, you, were you, were, you thought somebody was going to pick you up and carry you away and stick you in a hole somewhere. But now it's, you know, the further down in the avenues you go, the cooler and cooler it gets. Yeah, today on 4th Avenue, they pick you up and show you your new condo. Exactly yeah. right. Oh, the 4th <laughs> Avenue is full of condos for sure. Exactly. But where are you living now? All right. So I live back in the neighborhood where they called you Pete. <laughs> That's where the <laughs> Italians still still live in sporadic uh, little groups close to Bensonhurst. So that's an old school Italian enclave. And I, I live there because there is a honest to goodness fig tree in my backyard. So vestiges of the old days. So basically a tree grows in Brooklyn. A tree grows in Brooklyn. It, it wooed me out there. There's not a restaurant, uh, you know, to, to, of note, but I, my, my realtor showed me this house and it had this dead looking tree in the backyard. And I said, okay, what is that? Thinking it was just going to be a run of the mill maple or whatever you find. Um, and they said it was a fig and they said it produced fruit and it does. And that's what keeps me way in the bowels of Brooklyn. <laughs> But figs notwithstanding, I mean, the reason why Brooklyn's had such an explosion is because, first of all, it was affordable housing to begin with. Right. And then it became a cool place to be because the chefs moved in. Right. And the, the artists and the kind of people that you want to have coming into your restaurant and making it a scene. So that's true. That's how Williamsburg, where we are now, evolved from you know, just plain, you know, industrial warehouses to drawing in the cool hip artist kids and the chefs that were coming from Manhattan kitchens and wanted to do their own thing and take some risks. And then you get these glassed in hotel behemoths with chefs like Andrew Carmelini, um, who is a big deal, I'm sure. Having being from Manhattan, you know who Andrew Carmelini is. So it says something that he's come and joined us here in Brooklyn in this beautiful glassed-in hotel. Exactly. And what about this hotel says to you that Brooklyn has changed? Williamsburg uh, changed a while ago, but just the fact that we have these destination hotels that have become food hubs unto themselves. The hotel restaurant has been an established entity in Manhattan for a long time. That's where chefs kind of make their name and polish their brand. So Williamsburg, this is, I mean, this is not the only hotel in Williamsburg. The hotel within a few blocks where big name chefs are, are coming in and tr- trying to establish their own Manhattan credentials. So yeah, when you get, you know, hospitality groups like the NoHo Hospitality Group, which is Andrew Carmelini's group looking at Brooklyn real estate and saying like, hey, this is where I'm going to get the eyeballs um, that says that the neighborhood is, is, is happening, has happened. But let's put this into some, some number perspective. We're talking about 2.6 million people who live just in Brooklyn. Yeah. That's a lot of restaurants. That is a lot of restaurants. It's a lot of competition. So, you know, it makes it an exciting place to eat um, as a chef, having to crunch the numbers for yourself, trying to make a viable business. It's a little harder to be a chef than it is to be a diner nowadays, that's for sure. My baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. 
Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. You know, one of the things that, that always strikes me about New York is that, you know, I live also in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles is 86 separate incorporated cities in desperate search of a community, when in fact, Brooklyn is all these great communities. Oh, right? absolutely. It's the neighborhoods. Absolutely, and that's what certainly has always made the food scene so exciting. People who think of Brooklyn food as being the hip farm-to-table restaurant with a 30-year-old chef are really missing the you know the genesis of what originally made Brooklyn so exciting. And a lot of that's still here. It is still here. You have to go looking for it a little more. Okay, give me examples of where you look for it and where you find it. <laughs> okay, so the incredible thing about Brooklyn is all of these neighborhoods were, were, you know, really established by these different ethnic groups. And so when you visit Crown Heights, say, you're all of a sudden thrust into the middle of the Caribbean and all the incredible food traditions that come with it. And you go to Greenpoint, and that's, you know, essentially little Poland. Now, these new hip restaurants are we'll certainly stop right approaching. There. We'll stop right there. Kielbasa, baby. Of course. Absolutely. They are abs- they're known for, um, you know, these incredible uh, Polish butcher shops and these bakeries. And you still do see those interspersed with some of the hipper, newer restaurants. Um, of course, Sunset Park is Chinatown. That's actually a very interesting area, Sunset Park, because if you just wander a, a couple of avenues, so you start out... Um, in in Chinatown in Sunset Park and then you go up an avenue or two and all of a sudden you are in Mexico and Puerto Rico um, and then you walk a little more and you're in Borough Park which is a Hasidic community so you're going bagels and then tacos and and then uh, dumplings and dim sum and really you're not you know you're not even walking an avenue or two and you're moving from country to country to country and you mentioned walking Brooklyn is a walkable borough. It sure is. It sure is. Um, subway helps if you're going between absolutely. north and south. But no, it absolutely is. You just eat and go and walk and burn it off, and that's the best way to approach Brooklyn food. And then here we are at the William Vale, which by most hotel standards, you know, we've seen an evolution or maybe even a revolution in the definition of the word hotel restaurant, which was always an afterthought 25 years ago. Sure. You ate there if you had nowhere else to go, and it was meat and potatoes, and that was it. That's certainly not the case here. Oh, my goodness. No, th- well, they have three different concepts going on all in the same building. They have their flagship Italian restaurant, which is Luca, and they have their incredible 23-story high bar serving small plates, looking over the city. And then they have like a, a, a refurbished, refurbished uh, uh, van selling hamburgers out on the mezzanine. So you really don't need to. It's like being in a sandals resort. You, you probably should leave the, the facility and check out the rest of Brooklyn, but you could stay here and still have a pretty good time. Well, I mean, the, the experience is all-inclusive if you want it. Yeah, it absolutely is. And yet we haven't mentioned one thing that really was a, a trademark of Brooklyn for the, for the, for the uh, cognoscenti, if you will, for years, and that was steak. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it is interesting that we haven't... You had one restaurant that everybody knew. Peter Luger's. Absolutely. The incredible Peter Luger's. Yeah, it's, I've, that's something that I have, have talked about before. It's interesting that we haven't had any new great steakhouse. Um, there have been you know, multiple uh, variations on the theme in Manhattan, but you don't see you know, 
any any plays on the great steakhouse. Everybody's Why content to do Peter Why Luger. Is that? It's hard to say. Maybe it's just, you know, it's too stuffy a concept for Brooklyn. The idea of Brooklyn is that it's a casual experience and the steakhouse is considered very posh. Well, actually, I, I saw a survey recently that really got my attention. I'll tell you what it was. It's and they divided it between breakfast, lunch and dinner. And what they realized is that, you know, years ago, like the old three martini lunch was done. But now lunch is down because so many people are either working from home or they're eating out, but they're eating out within two blocks of where they you know where they're living yeah. and they're keeping it more simple they're not spending three hours at lunch um and the same thing applies to breakfast has it gotten to the point where people are just really focusing on dinner um i don't know if if i mean there is something to the fact that people are grazing more and more so i don't know if it's that they're focusing on dinner rather than they're just not you know adhering to the the standard breakfast lunch and dinner i think a lar- another you know factor into why you're not seeing steakhouses is you know, meat is on the way out. What you're seeing are restaurants that are about vegetables, celebrating vegetables and a little bit of seafood. So it also Find has to- Find me a restaurant today that doesn't have kale. I know, that's, well, that's that's one of the uh, the ingredients that Brooklyn okay, now, gets now, brandished now, now, now with, I have to ask the you land this, of kale. The land of kale. But I gotta ask you this question. 10 years ago, I never heard the word gluten. I know. What was that all about? I know. And nobody had peanut allergies either. It's hard not to, you know, I tend to roll my eyes a little bit. I know that there are people out there with legitimate no, absolutely. allergies. Without a doubt. But I refuse to believe that it's as many people as Now as the people claim. who don't even know what gluten is, they just say, I like it gluten-free if I call you <laughs> gluten-free. It's like, could you please tell me what gluten I don't know, but I just want it free. Yeah. Know, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a person known for denying myself. <laughs> I write about food for a living, but bread, there's no point in living. Well, given it. all the choices that you're confronted with, in your job of, of discovering all these places, what's been the biggest surprise for you in the food scene? Biggest surprise in the food scene? Um, Other than kale and gluten-free. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that I've, I've been surprised by anything because Brooklyn, you know, they're kind of just on the cutting edge of where the world is moving in terms of how they eat. So I don't know what's surprising. There are things that I'm, I've been excited to see. Like? Brooklyn restaurants have been very big in embracing the idea of eating sustainably, of course, like local sustainable has become a bit of a buzzword. But there are restaurants that, you know, more than just putting it on their menu and it's kind of an empty phrase. They're starting to put their money where, where their mouth is. So you're seeing restaurants that are really thinking um, in, in very concrete terms about how they could be no waste. So there's a restaurant in Greenpoint called 21 Greenpoint. Easy to remember, it is at 21 Greenpoint. I'm shocked. <laughs> no, they're keeping it simple. Um, and they have a very low waste program. So they're working with ingredients that most chefs don't think of using. So they have an ugly vegetable snack, quote unquote. So they use the discarded tops of carrots and they make them into a really delightful crudite. And then they have a Sunday supper that is literally dishes that are comprised of whatever they have left over from their regular dinner menu. So it costs about, I think it costs $21. So we're keeping with the 21 theme. Um, $21, you get a three-course meal, and it's not like you're eating garbage. They're really thought-out, beautiful dishes. So you can be cool and eat responsibly. Absolutely. And so that's there are a lot of restaurants, they are, they're going past that easy, like, eye roll, like, oh, we, we're so sustainable, which means that I go to the green market and I pick up some kale there. I, it 
means that they're actually <laughs> thinking about the impact that their restaurant is making. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk Now, here we are at a hotel in a, in, a, in, a, in a borough of New York City that is the second most populated county in the United States. It's lar- it's a, if it was its own city, it would be the fourth largest city in the United States. And so we've seen all the building that's happening here, including this hotel, which is a little bit less than a year old. And one of the guys putting it together is my next guest, uh, Alessandro Mungi, right? That's right. What was the vision here? Because... You could have done, I mean, you were, you were starting with it with a blank canvas, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was an opportunity for us to really embrace what is happening here in Brooklyn. There's so much exciting architecture. There's so much exciting movement here. And the last thing we wanted to do with this hotel was do something that was contrived, meaning that there was nothing here, a warehouse that was under some sort of industrial form. And... When this new piece of architecture came in, the last thing I was going to do from an interior perspective was to do that sort of exposed brick and beam with uh, this sort of disheveled look. It wasn't right for this area. It wasn't right for this building. It wasn't right for Brooklyn, in my opinion. We we were not interested in creating. I, lo- I love it. It wasn't right for Brooklyn. It wasn't right for Brooklyn. I wasn't I wasn't going to do any disrespect to Brooklyn and, and create some thematic interior that just doesn't belong here. Okay, so what did you do instead? So what we did is we created this. I think really, really beautiful canvas of, of almost clean, simple, modern design on the interiors and celebrated these craftsmen and these, and these artisans that live here in Brooklyn. We reached out to the Pratt Museum. We reached out to all these other craftsmanships, of, craftsmen rather, of mill workers, for example, that all contributed to the, the interiors of this space. So we had them make the interior of the restaurant, as an example, Luca. We had the Pratt um, Institute of Pratt Museum come in and talk to us about the emerging artists that are coming up and there's an established artist. So we had them populate the rooms with artwork. And so it just became a celebration of those who live here rather than anything contrived. Now I've got to ask you my big devil's advocate question. I always ask it when it comes to design of hotels, light, mm-hmm. because I'm one of those people who believes that no hotel designer should ever be paid for their work until they had to spend at least one or two nights in the room they created. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to crawl around the room looking for a light bulb or for, for you know, to connect my laptop. Mm-hmm. But the, it's that 40-watt bulb mood lighting thing that drives me up the wall. Mm-hmm. I want options. I, I want to be able to read in the room. I want to be able to think in the room. And if I want mood lighting, let me set it. So I really recommend you to have a stay here if you haven't, because <laughs> I think we've hit all those points. It is a very, very comfortable room. We've got reading lights right at your bed. We've got the bathroom that actually illuminates properly at 3,500 Kelvins. It is a right setting. But you said 3,500 Kelvins. Help me out. Is so that, that, is that temperature. really right? Yeah, it's temperature. Oh, that yeah. really? So what, and the other thing about this is that when you want that mood, there's a switch right by the lazing one. And all of the, lum- you have this beautiful kind of underlight outside on the balconies that just wash the floor in your room. And it just has this gorgeous, gorgeous, like, 
ombre kind of feel inside that room. It's just stunning. It's really stunning. You know, it reminds me, there's a hotel in London called The Goring, mm-hmm. and most people don't remember it except that it was where Kate Middleton spent the night before her wedding. Mm-hmm. But they have a little light panel in the room that's got four switches. It's bright, medium, low, and ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it works. Do you, do you, I mean, do you like those settings? I always find in hotels the best remark I'm going to get is simplicity is the oh, best. Yeah. Give me a, don't give me a remote control switch I have to call NASA exactly. about. It. Just exactly. how about on, off? Exactly. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.